Welcome back to Bitcoin for Advisors. I'm your host, Morgan Richard, and with me, I have the assistant to the host. Junior assistant. Junior assistant. He's been demoted. Pierre <laughs> Rochard. Welcome back. Thank you. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, it's good to see you. Glad I didn't get fired. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really have anyone to replace you with, so, you know, there's no other Richard I could invite on. Uh, well, true, but there's all sorts of uh, Bitcoiners who would love to join a podcast. I'm sure that's true. Yeah. But they don't live in my house. It's already hard enough to uh, get this going with just you and me <laughs> living under one roof. True. Um, so, yeah, we wanted to pick up our conversation about proof of stake for sure, which we will get to. But um, I think we wanted to start with the price because it's been quite volatile year to date, wouldn't you say? It has. Yeah. Um, although I actually I like the word um, uh, exchange rate better mm. than price because we we use price for securities generally an exchange rate for currencies. Yeah, that's fair. And uh, I really, I, I think of Bitcoin as much more of a, a currency. And people say, oh, you know, it's um, uh, it's it's not a currency because nobody uses it as their own unit of account or uh, they don't actually use it as their medium of exchange. Although, you know, on the store value, I think everyone agrees that there are people who use it as store value. But um, I think that that's misleading because... Uh, Bitcoiners who um, look at opportunity costs in terms of how many Bitcoin they could have bought instead of buying, spending, investing, and whatever, um, they are using Bitcoin as their unit of account. And so I, I, I really see Bitcoin as my domestic currency and uh, the dollar as, as the foreign currency uh, that I have to uh, deal with, uh, you know, outside my house. Sounds like a CFA problem. <laughs> uh yeah perhaps perhaps i think the the cfa curriculum should uh update their examples with uh some, some bitcoin currency yeah i totally agree although they're much more likely to update them with some sort of uh, altcoins or whatever else matt hogan is representing um but yeah no i i like your point on that for sure because i think i think especially in the bitcoin community people do use bitcoin as their local currency or at least they evaluate what they're spending based on how much Bitcoin they could otherwise have bought with that amount. So um, if you're reframing how you're doing things, I also think it promotes long-term saving. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so the exchange rate is volatile, um, but that only really affects people who are leveraged or who are short or um, who have some kind of position where if the exchange rate moves too far in one direction or the other, uh, that they get liquidated. Um, and for everyone else, um, it does affect your purchasing power. Uh, so, you know, if you're actually spending your Bitcoin, um, but conversely, if you are accumulating Bitcoin, uh, that means you can pick up more Satoshis than you would have otherwise. Yeah, definitely. I think though, like the, the mindset part, could be hard and if you're not if you haven't been through many a bitcoin cycle maybe you got in during the hype at the beginning of 2021 when everyone thought it was going to 100 plus thousand dollars a coin and now you're sitting on some losses um i would say that for for some people that might be difficult like even though they're not being directly liquidated let's say or margin called or even looking to spend their bitcoin they're still sitting on let's say a 30 plus percent loss so what do you have to say to those people 
one Bitcoin equals one Bitcoin. There you go. Uh, that um, if they use Bitcoin as their unit of account, uh, that they'll not really see any fluctuations in the uh, exchange rate. Um, but yeah, I mean, obviously, it, it doesn't feel good to lose so much purchasing power in such a short period of time. Um, and I think that, um, you know, some Bitcoiners argue that you should not hold any fiat currency, you shouldn't have any dollars or euros or whatever um, your, your local foreign currency is. <laughs> um, and I, I agree with the sentiment there. The challenge is one of psychology, which is that um, if, if you do have a little bit of a fiat reserve, uh, that um, that might actually help you hold your Bitcoin uh, longer and not panic sell because uh, you have to pay rent at the end of the month or something like that. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I hear this a lot from Bitcoiners where they don't want to hold any dollars, right? Because or any fiat in general, because they think that it's going to devalue. And they're, that's fair, right? It is going to devalue. Or, or that it's immoral. Or it's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, however, though, if you don't have enough, right, it's exactly what you're saying that you're more likely to have to sell your Bitcoin at maybe the worst possible time because you need to pay rent, you need to put food on your table, you need to do anything else that you would generally do regularly with your with your cash. Um, and I would hate to see somebody who could be a longtime hodler get wrecked because they put too much in. It's something that we evaluate in um, on a financial planning basis for clients all the time. How much cash do people need to keep around? How much um, is an appropriate emergency savings fund versus how much can you have invested? And even if you don't think Bitcoin is an investment because it's a currency, right? There's it still moves around. It's still not you're you still have liabilities in dollars or fiat. Um, and you need to do some what we call asset liability matching to make sure that you have enough assets in fiat to match the liability, which is whatever expense you have coming up. And the duration of the liability matters as well. So yeah. you might not necessarily need to keep fiat around for, you know, your the entirety of your 30 year mortgage, uh, you know, in a, uh, <laughs> in a fund. Um but uh, that at least, you know, for the next three months or six months. Um, but really, if you look at the history of Bitcoin, um, you you might want to match out to like four years because that historically, you know, Bitcoin's never gone down over a period of four years. But um, I think that would be overkill uh, that um, to, to do it over, you know, to match your liabilities for four years, but at least for like six months. Yeah, I would say like probably six months is a good rule of thumb, but I think you can take it person by person, right? If you have very regular stable income and you don't have any like any foreseeable reason why you wouldn't have that stable income, right? You can have a much smaller emergency fund than somebody who, you know, is, gets paid one time per year based on some sort of art project they do, right? It's very different um, as far as like how much risk you have in your income. And has kids. Mm -hmm. And has kids, has a mortgage, has all sorts of things, right? Whereas if you... Um, I don't know, you've been working for a company and you're like invaluable to them and you've been there for 20 plus years and you know you're not going anywhere, right? That's very different than um, somebody who just started a business or who gets paid very irregularly or gets paid in lump sums or has very large expenses, right? If you also tend to have lower expenses, you need a smaller emergency fund. So I think the rules of thumb help as a good starting point, but it also is really important to take it on a case-by-case basis. That way you don't have so much fiat laying around. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, then there's kind of the question of, well, first of all, 
it would be astounding to me if anyone acquired Bitcoin and did not already know that it is a volatile asset. Yeah. I, mean, I, I think that <laughs> um, that's like the number one criticism of it. It yeah. gets repeated over and over and over. And so if that has not been disclosed to you, I'm, I'm sorry, but uh, you, you should have uh, paid more attention, I guess, or at least look at a price chart uh, that, you know, would, would show you the uh, the volatility there. Yeah, I agree. But I can see the other side of the coin where people see it going up and they can they assume it's going to continue to go up. So they think that wherever they purchased it, even if it's volatile, well, it'll always be higher than where I purchased it from. So I'll be able to manage the feelings of frustration and loss that I will feel after that's not the case. Um, so I think it also depends on your entry point for sure. And um, this this raises another related question, which is um, people will get into debates about DCA that is dollar cost averaging versus lump sum buying. So mm-hmm. if you have an existing portfolio of assets that doesn't have any Bitcoin in it, and you want to go from 0% to 5%, do you do that in one day? Do you do that over six months? Do you do it over two years? And this is a debate that flares up occasionally. <laughs> um, but it it, obviously, the math works out to where you should always just do it lump sum in mm-hmm. this scenario, because historically, Bitcoin has gone up in value. And so if you uh, DCA into your position that uh, you're going to miss out on some gains. Th- the psychological aspect, though, that we just mentioned kicks into play as well, which is that um, if you lump sum buy on day zero... Are you more likely to lump sum sell mm-hmm. in ten days when it's down ten percent and you're you're freaking out? Um, versus if you had DCA'd in slowly, um, that means that you might not ever have the panic of wanting to lump sum sell. Yeah, I mean, we have a saying in my firm um, that goes like this: uh, When you have money to invest, that's the best time to invest, and when you need money, that's the best time to sell. Um, and I think it applies really beautifully to Bitcoin. Um, I think it's one of those things where you do like lump sum investing is the best practice. It's the best practice actually for a number of reasons. The first one is that the accounting that goes on at these exchanges is so poor that if you're DCAing, I've seen some ridiculous DCAs on Twitter where people are buying like $3 an hour. It's like, do you know what the accounting on that is going to be like? And the the exchange isn't really doing that for you. So if you're not keeping good records, like you'd have no idea what your cost basis is. I mean, it's just it's I mean, it's absurd the amount of time that you're gonna have to spend doing that for starters. Well, well, hold on, because mm-hmm. if you never sell, you don't need to know the cost basis. That's fair. But assuming <laughs> at some point in the future, you might want to use your Bitcoin for something. I mean, maybe at that point, the it'll be the reserve currency. So I mean, maybe that's the hope, but I would say like it's still kind of important from a record keeping standpoint to know where you bought it. Um, or maybe not. I mean, I don't know. There's that aspect of it. I think it's easier just to keep track of what you have when you do a lump sum or if you do, you know, a, a normal DCA like once a month rather than every hour. Um, <laughs> so there's a couple of things to consider there. Um, and then the other thing being that like you're not a market timer. Um, I think that the, if anything, the more volatile an asset is, the less likely you are to be able to time the market. And I think people tend to think of the opposite. They tend to think the more volatile the asset, the easier it's going to be for me to time it because it moves around so much. And what we found and what studies have shown is that's just simply not the case. So I think um, because of that, the more volatile something is, the more you should try to lump sum in. Yes. And, you know, I I really like the the data analysis when they look at um, if you missed 
the top 10 days of gains, uh, here's how much lower your return would be. And it is just astounding that you have an order of magnitude difference in the return because the returns are so concentrated on specific green candles mm-hmm. in a matter of hours that yeah. if you're not in the market at that specific point, um, then you um, have really missed out. Yeah. And I mean, unless you're like really using your Ouija board well, there's no way you're going to know when that green candle is going to hit. No, they're, they're, they're always unexpected, um, generally unrelated to any kind of news event. Yep. Uh, and that's the other thing is people think that if they watch the news, they'll be able to time the market <laughs> when, uh, you know, that's that's a fool's errand. The, the news generally reacts to the price, yeah. right? Where they say, oh. They come up with a reason why rather than vice versa. They, yeah. They always have a reason yeah. why. But This seems to be one of my least favorite things about working at Merrill Lynch. So I worked for this lady at Merrill Lynch. And when the markets would be down in the morning, like big, she'd be like, find out why. And I'd like go at Bloomberg and like scour for these articles and it was always so stupid because i remember just thinking like is aren't you professional like shouldn't you know that there's actually no reason why but the news is gonna fit like fabricate one for you um but yeah she had to send it to all the clients so that they would know and and the reason it's not news related is that what it is related to is cash flows and so if somebody is you know, following your advice of buying when they can and selling when they need to, those are not going to be tied to the news at all. Generally, they're going to be tied to specific things going on in that person's life or in that person's business where they aren't public. And so it's just related to somebody depositing, you know, X million dollars uh, in exchange and buying up the order book and uh, bidding up the price. Oh, totally. Yeah. And I mean, even if somebody isn't following my advice, my advice is just sort of one of those things that I think is sort of generic. Like that's what most people do and probably should be doing anyways. Um, That advice is really for the people who like they can't get out of their own heads and they're like think that they can time the market. But most people just they don't. They're just they have money and they're going to go do it. Yeah. Yeah. They Mm -hmm. they listen to our podcast and they're. (laughs) <laughs> orange filled and yeah. they've got conviction. Yeah, exactly. Um, the other part of it, too, is that a lot of market movements can be driven by the marginal trader that might be leveraged, um, you know, short or long. And um, so there's there's market situations where there's like cascading liquidations mm-hmm. and it has nothing to do with the news. It just has to do with um, where people's positions were and how much leverage they had. Yeah, totally. I think that's a great point. Uh, so, yeah, it is a bit of a fool's errand to try to time the market. Um, now, related, though, then people say, um, oh, well, you know, what about recurring buys? But that's distinct from the argument of DCA versus lump sum. Mm-hmm. DCA versus lump sum is you already have the capital. Yep. Recurring buy is you have income that that you earn over time and so you're adding to your 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 capital um and there you don't really have a choice, right? You- oh yeah, totally. I mean, I think if you're doing a recurring buy because you get paid twice a month and you know um x percentage of your paycheck you don't use for whatever reason and then you're going to put that into Bitcoin, like that's definitely the way to do it because obviously then you you're saving immediately. Um, and yeah, that's not a DCA. And I think that that's a good distinction for sure. Um, but yeah, the, it's an interesting thing though, because I would say that's probably not the norm. 
I think that most people, they don't automatically set up some sort of recurring buy based on their income because they don't really, they haven't really figured out the difference between their income and their expenses and what's left over. So I think that's the first part is like dialing it in so that you can do a recurring buy rather than accumulating a bunch of cash and then willy nilly deciding how much you're going to invest. Right. Right. Um, that involves some budgeting, some foresight, um, all things that a financial planner can help with. <laughs> For sure. Because then it's like a subscription service, right? That you subscribe to Bitcoin, you know, $100 a month or whatever it is that mm-hmm. you can afford. Um, and unlike a gym membership, if you forget about it, uh, you actually do get more financially healthy. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. And they don't make you go through hoops to cancel. Um, hopefully. I mean... <laughs> maybe they should make you go through hoops to cancel. Yeah, maybe, maybe that would actually be, be good for your financial health. But you you have to provide a signed affidavit that has been notarized yeah. that you are canceling your Bitcoin subscription. I do not, in fact, have income any longer. Yeah. <laughs> you have to provide a proof of no income. Your latest tax return showing that you're poor. <laughs> Tax returns, though, are so late. Yeah. Like, you could have been poor six months before you yeah. had that tax return. <laughs> the, the ACH has to fail for, for it to unsubscribe. Yeah. I guess the other thing, I guess this is sort of related, but not really, is um, people have asked me about what account they should hold Bitcoin in. Um, and I think it's kind of important to discuss this. So um, if you hold it in a regular taxable account, right, you get to decide when you take your taxable gain. Obviously, that taxable gain is going to be related to when you sell, right? And some some outside factors might be beyond your control, like you happen to ex, you know, really need money at that period of time, and therefore you're going to take a capital gain. Um, but otherwise, you should be able to choose at like the point at which you're going to take that capital gain. And presumably, you can time it with when you don't have a lot of other income and pay a lower capital gains percentage. So um, I think the taxable account is often like thought of as as bad because, oh, I pay taxes on it. But there are a lot of ways that you can sort of time how you're going to take your gains so that you can sort of spread the tax out over time. Um, you Let, can... Let's clarify what a taxable account is, because in Bitcoin, a taxable account is kind of the default, right? Yeah, a taxable account is the default. So you go onto an exchange, you sign up, you're basically you probably you most likely have a taxable account unless you went to somewhere like I guess Kingdom Trust would be one of them. I think Unchained Capital is now offering it, and Casa now has a an IRA account. Um, but it's come up in financial planning circles as like, well, it would be you know if my client has money in a traditional IRA, then we should put it there because that's where the money is. Because a lot of people accumulate money over time in their four hundred one k's, they roll it over, and then that's where they have the money to invest. The problem with putting something like this in a four hundred one k is if we are right, and this actually does become the world's global reserve currency, right? You now have a position that you're going to have to take required minimum distributions on. Um, and it, those required minimum distributions get taxed as, at income tax brackets rather than at preferential capital gains tax brackets. So, um, I would say if you're going to hold Bitcoin, buy and hold, either do it in a Roth IRA if it makes sense, or do it in a normal taxable brokerage account, how you would do it if you just signed up on an exchange, but don't go messing around with your traditional IRA. Um, yes, although unless you can hold your own keys with it. And you're betting that the IRS won't exist and 
you know, the RMD just is not a non-issue. Oh, okay. Well, that's not tax advice from Pierre Rochard, just letting you know. No, no, not tax advice. <laughs> also not tax advice. Uh, uh, withdrawing everything from your 401k, paying the penalty and putting it into Bitcoin. <laughs> it's probably better to do that, honestly. I bet if you if we actually did a scenario where Bitcoin went to like $2 million a coin, it, the RMDs wouldn't be great for somebody who had, who had invested. I just don't imagine that and like fiat currency continues to survive and the IRS is charging taxes on dollars that are worthless. Yeah, that's fair. I guess we'll see what happens in the future. I just feel like because we're always thinking about things 30, 50 years out that like in my head, it just doesn't make sense why you would put yourself even in that situation. Yeah. But I guess then that leaves you with a bunch of fiat standard assets that you would put in your 401ks. I don't really know. I mean, it's well, an interesting question. Th- there's you know there's micro strategy or whatever yeah. uh you know stocks gbtc uh all the mining companies mm-hmm. uh that that you could uh or you could actually use your 401k as as your hedge yep. right that that's just going to be like the lame tradfi uh 80 20 portfolio or whatever percentage <laughs> they're doing nowadays um <laughs> Hundred percent, hundred percent equity. Yeah, probably, equity. depending. On, I mean, if you're a Bitcoin investor, I don't see how you would put a bunch of bonds in your four hundred one k. But it's immoral to do so. Mm. I mean, they're just not even yielding anything. Sometimes when I see these arguments on Twitter about bonds, I'm just like, why are we even having this discussion? They're, well, they're not what, worth anything. What you could do is buy micro strategy <laughs> bonds yeah, that are go. convertibles, and that way you have exposure to Bitcoin. Yeah, you could do that too. Not financial advice, not tax advice. Yeah, exactly. Consult a professional. Yeah, we don't know anything here. (laughs) (laughs) Hire a financial planner. Yeah, hire a financial planner. Not me, somebody else. (laughs) Um, Anyways, you want to, anything else you want to add there? Um, Well, I I think that the um, part that we didn't really get into is um, the, what is it that, People have the people can buy Bitcoin, right? And then people have to sell it. And kind of what are the different life events that would drive either of those actions? Yeah, that's a good point. So, I mean, the buying Bitcoin thing, right, would be you have uh, a net surplus of income versus expenses, and that would be the recurring buy um, or lump sum, depending on how you're paid. There could be an inheritance that you get where you could then use it to buy Bitcoin. You could have some sort of um, insurance settlement um, or some other settlement, right? Medical settlement or legal settlement that could give you a bunch of income as a windfall, any kind of windfall. Um, So that's how I would say the buying would occur, right? And and portfolio rebalancing, right? That you're now putting an allocation towards bitcoin yes yeah you are selling have a assets. small business mm-hmm. yeah. selling something to buy something else um selling sell real, your real estate, estate. Yes. to buy bitcoin I, I always tell people to sell their real estate i mean to me that's the most obvious one real estate um is- yeah it really is obvious to me too and i hear it from especially from bitcoiners because bitcoiners are like okay well if i'm gonna i need to diversify then i'm gonna diversify into land because they're not making any more land and that's a real asset and i hear the whole thing and it's like okay Real estate's a business. I don't know why you think that you get some sort of like free money from rental properties. Um, like you actually have to be a landlord. And if you're not a landlord, you have to pay somebody to do that for you. And you have to like be available when somebody's toilet breaks or you have to pay somebody to be available when somebody's toilet breaks. You have to like 
you know, pick good tenants. Otherwise, they might wreck your property. I mean, there's so many things that go into being a landlord. Um, And there's also like, there aren't, there's economies of scale if you have many rental properties. But if you're just like some bozo like me, and we, you have one rental property, like you've got all of this risk in one property where like your tenant could just wreck you. Um, <laughs> and it seems so much easier to me to just buy Bitcoin. I mean, I, I don't know why you would do anything otherwise. I think that there are reasons why maybe if you find real estate interesting, if that's what you always hoped your profession would be, or I don't know, you're into farming and you decide to buy a bunch of farmland and you actually are a farmer and you own Bitcoin. There are like reasons why maybe you would diversify in that regard. But this like, I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and I was told to have multiple springs of income. And therefore, because Bitcoin doesn't have a cash flow, I should also have a rental property thing is just it's be it's beyond bizarre. And it doesn't make financial sense. And that is financial advice. Do not do that to yourself. And even if you love real estate, and you're interested in real estate, you can get a job working for someone else on their real estate properties and, uh, you know, be accumulating Bitcoin instead of accumulating uh, overpriced uh, assets. Yeah, that's fair for sure. Um, on the selling side, to get back to your original question, I mean, that's going to really depend on life events, right? I mean, maybe if you're a regular Bitcoiner, you're not going to send your kid to college, but that tends to be a large expense that the, people yeah, want to do. They should never... Children... <laughs> should never go to college. You shouldn't go to college until you're over 35. Yeah, there you go. That and would be like actually appreciated and not skip any classes. Yeah, and and you go not because you want to increase your income. You're already at peak earning. Um but um because uh you're you've essentially retired early mm-hmm. and you're interested in developing yourself as a person and learning more. Uh, and certainly not for the life experience of, you know, getting drunk because you don't need to go to college for that. Yeah. I mean, especially now, right? It's like a few hundred thousand dollars at this point to go to a four-year private school. So and, uh, to attend over Zoom. Yeah. Zoom to calls. attend over Zoom calls. So or wear a mask in class. If you're paying for the experience and it's a few hundred thousand dollars for the whole experience and all you're doing is missing some Zoom calls and getting drunk with friends. I mean, and your kid isn't going to understand what you're spending, but you as a parent think that you're doing the right thing because your parent paid for you type of a thing. I mean, it's just, it's a, it's a weird place we're in for sure. I mean, I don't know. My hope is that our kids do something else. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) I I think that there's a lot of career opportunities that don't require college. And of course I'm a total hypocrite. We're both total hypocrites. We both went to college uh, when we were supposed to. Ridiculous amounts of degrees over here. Yeah. Um, but, um, I, I think that, uh, the trades or even, uh, software development, you know, the, those are, uh, better avenues. Um, and then go to college later on, uh, when you're mature and you really are going to learn things. There are ways to make it cheaper too. Like if you really want, if your kid really wants to be a doctor or whatever, right. You can go to community college for the first two years. Uh, kid, to a kids, nobody should become a doctor right now. I think that the medical field has become completely corrupted until the American Medical Association is abolished. And, uh, you know, I think being a doctor should be more of like an apprenticeship uh, type model than um, going to medical school. I I, I can't. uh, There's a lot of problems with the system for sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But anyways, not not the topic of today's podcast. Yeah, definitely we, not. I think we've annoyed all of our doctor yep. listeners we've right now. We've pretty much annoyed everybody. Yeah. <laughs> Anyone with kids is now not listening to this podcast yeah. anymore. 
congratulations Richards. Yeah. <laughs> um anyways so that would be one reason uh buying a home is always a popular reason to want to sell assets um in a lump sum and purchase something else um home buying comes with all sorts of things i don't think it's bad to be a homeowner i think it's bad to be a homeowner not knowing what your expenses are going to be yeah and and becoming a homeowner a homeowner where part of your pros and cons in your pros you're like it's an investment mm-hmm. like that should not be a part of your pros it yeah. should be a part of your cons it's a liability it's totally a consumption item and and the other yeah. thing though is that i think the biggest pro is about the available inventory there's so many more homes available for sale than there are for rent mm-hmm. that um, if you're looking for a specific place or a specific style of home that you'll just have more choice there in buying. Um, but that that to me should be the the only the biggest pro uh, is that the home that you want is not for rent. It's for sale. Yep. Yeah, that's fair. Um, the one thing that we like to do for clients in our practice is, um, we like to keep all home expenses, including utilities and home maintenance under 20% of pre-tax income. Um, that's often not looked at because a mortgage lender will lend you 36% of your pre-tax income for just your mortgage and your property taxes. So people think, oh, okay, I'm, you know, doing the right thing. But if you actually did that and then you tack on the extra costs for, um, maintenance and then the time that you spend and everything else, like you're way over this 20% number. Um, and we think that actually the mortgage and the interest plus the property taxes shouldn't even equal the 20% number. It should be lower than that to account for the fact that you are going to have maintenance on your home. What happens if, uh, you borrow as much as you can? Well, as much as they'll let you. As much as you'll let you. You just have a really high payment, right? And that might not be something where you're able to make that high payment and also, let's say, stack sats or, you know, afford the lifestyle that you want to have outside of your home. Go on a vacation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Go on a vacation is a big one. I mean, car. We, car. If you wanted to send your kids to private school, I mean, I've seen I've seen expenses where you've got a large mortgage, you've got kids going to private school, you got large vacations and a car. And the next thing you know, you're either in debt or you're not saving anything. So... Um, I think it's something to keep in mind. It's like, okay, how important is your house relative to other things that you like to do in your life? And if your house is very high in the list, you never leave your house, you don't want to do anything other than your house, then I guess it's okay. But if you have other things that you want to do or people you want to see or places you want to go, foods you want to eat, um, then it's going to get very pricey for you to spend lots of money on your home. And it generally means that people don't save. It doesn't mean that they sacrifice in other areas. Yeah, it's interesting the difference between somebody who's income wealthy versus somebody who's uh, asset wealthy. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, that you know, buying too much house is a great way to be uh, asset poor, home poor. Yep, house poor and income wealthy. And a and a mortgage lender loves the income wealthy. They could really give a crap about your assets, which I always find to be interesting because it's like, okay, we got a client with five million dollars in in investments but they only make 40 grand a year and they get denied. <laughs> You're just like, uh, they could buy this house in cash. Like this whole thing is stupid. We're just doing a mortgage because yeah. interest rates are low. And, <laughs> and I think the reason that why that's like that is because these laws are written by lawyers who are income wealthy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so they think that that's, that should be the only underwriting criteria is your income uh, because they're, they're asset poor. Yeah, totally. And they probably all have student loans. Yeah, uh, and and then obviously um, 
our financial system has become so highly regulated that there's no market signals, right? It's all just driven by, oh, will this be a conforming loan for FHA, you know, securization subsidy, blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, Well, I mean, we could probably spend an entire hour on home buying. So maybe we'll just add to the list of what people tend to spend money on. Um, I'd say just large fixed expenses in general, right? That fancy vacation you always wanted to take might be some reason to sell some sats. Um, You always wanted to hike Tanzania. I don't know. Um, (laughs) You want to be charitable in some way. um, And that doesn't necessarily mean, you know, like the typical 501c3s, like maybe you you really wanted to take some time to set up your own thing or uh, directly help people. Um, That tends to be a large, large item, large line expense for people. Um, There's always the boats, the extra houses, the vacation homes, those kinds of things. Um, And the thing I like to say about the extra boats, the extra houses is that you really need to calculate your, um, your hourly rate on those or your per night rate on your vacation home. Because if you're one of these people, you work a W-2 job and you only take two weeks vacation per year and you don't spend all two of them even at your vacation home, you have no business buying a vacation home. Yeah, that's a total waste. Same thing with your boat. You buy a boat and you only go on the lake three times a year. Why'd you buy a boat for? I mean, it's it's just absurd. Should have rented. Yep, Totally. So, and also it's just like an asset you need to maintain rather than, um, and not even really an asset. It's a liability you need to maintain (laughs) that you have to spend time winterizing your boat, cleaning your boat, do all the things to your boat, paying for other people to do it to your boat. I don't know. Maybe maintaining it when it breaks or whatever. Mm -hmm. I think if you use it a lot, that's one thing. But if you don't, then you just have no business doing those things. And then there's, there's retirement. Yes, there is retirement too. So, um, and definitely something to consider even when you're young is like how much you're going to need later. I mean, I think it's really easy when you're young to say, okay, I'm going to work forever. I really like what I do. Or maybe you're in another camp where you want to retire tomorrow because you hate what you do. And maybe you should reconsider what you're doing rather than thinking about retiring tomorrow. Um, But retirement is, you know, generally people's largest expense because you have no income and you have to fund 30 plus years of living. Um, plus potentially your nursing home because your kids don't want to take care of you and you're older. Yeah. Or they just can't. Um, starting a business as well. Yeah. Starting a business is a good one. You have a better list than me. Oh yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm just coming up with these off the top of my head. Um, (laughs) got some brain fog today. You know, some (laughs) people might say, um, having kids, but I really, I, I object to that, um, of, um, I think, this, you know, again, total hypocrite because this isn't what we did, but um, you can have kids earlier and be poor. Um, and yeah, but I think work. it's unfair to say that that's not what we did for those reasons. We didn't have kids earlier, not because we didn't have the money to have them earlier. Right. Yeah. Right. It's just the way it worked out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I hear that all the time. And I also hear I only want to have one kid because they're so expensive. Um. And yeah, I mean, I think if you're going to put your kid through private school from age two until they're 18, and then you want to fully fund college, and you also want to take nice vacations and have the highest quality food on your table, and, you know, make sure that they constantly have every ounce of entertainment and toys that they could ever possibly need, and that they're scheduled to the T with activities and camps and all sorts of other stuff, then yeah, it's going to be really darn expensive. 
Um, Vacations, all that. Yeah. yeah, all that stuff, it adds up for sure. Um, I remember when we lived in New York, there was this class I wanted to take Alex to as a um, music class. And um, <laughs> it was like $50 for a half hour. And I remember just being like offended by that price because it's like kids literally like holding a tambourine, not even shaking it. I mean, because he was so young. It was like he couldn't even shake the tambourine. Um, so I, I did not sign up for that. But I know a lot of people who did. <laughs> <laughs> the tambourine's five dollars. Yeah, yeah, that's basically what I did. I bought a twenty dollar backpack of uh, instruments that we still have. Yeah, and that we, he still he plays? still plays <laughs> it, and we we had music class at home. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, those things are really for. I think the the thing is that we get it in our head. Oh, our kids need these things, but it turns out it's really more of like mom wants to get out of the house and meet other moms. Right? There's there's some other reasons why maybe you'd want to spend money on those things. But I think the the point of it is not to necessarily not do these things for your kids, but to just be honest about why you're doing it. Yep. Um, yeah, I can't think of any other uh, spending things. I'm sure that uh, listeners have uh, their own list of uh, things they're saving up towards goals. I mean, obviously, you know, even with kids, it's like maybe it's just you're saving up to leave an inheritance, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, a legacy is is very important to a lot of people. Um, the thing I would say about the legacy is uh, don't try to hold the purse strings too tight on your children. Um, I mean, I don't think they've done enough studies on this, but I can just tell you from my um, generally practically when people inherit money from parents or grandparents and they come with a lot of stipulations the kids are basically on life support until they are handed over the money from the trust. So when I talk to parents about how they want to set up trusts, we talk about what kind of life they want for their children rather than what kind of life they want for the money for their children, right? It's really easy to say, okay, I want my kid to have money until they're 65. So I'm just going to hand them out money a little bit at a time from age 30 until 65. That way it never runs out. And that seems like a good idea. But you also basically have your kid like hooked up to the IV of their trust for 35 years. Um, And it's not good for them psychologically. So I would say that that's the number one thing to consider um, and that the best thing to do, which is probably not the best thing for your money, is that you give it to them and you let them lose it um, yeah. or you let them lose enough of it that they go and figure out how to do something good with it. Um, and it'll at least be theirs rather than it being yours all the time. Yeah, I, I think that the best lessons in life are the ones that are learned the hard way. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you leave a lump sum, just the entire lump sum, when they turn 18 and they go blow it all, I think they've learned a great lesson <laughs> and that their life is is going to be much better than if you were drip, drip, dripping it out um, over the course of their life. Yeah, for sure. It also it doesn't teach them anything about how to manage money, right? If you're constantly giving them a stipend every single month and they just know that they can spend that on whatever and they don't think about saving and they don't think about working and they don't think about how to make things really their own because they know they have this. Um, And it really can mess with your head. I mean, I think it's one of those things where people say, oh, poor rich person with a trust. But um, but yeah, I mean, poor rich person with a trust. I mean, it's really like... (laughs) Yeah, it's it's not a good way to live. And obviously, it's not like the worst problem to have in the world. But it's still up there on, you know, psychologically not things that you would want to do to your children. And um, I think that if you're a Bitcoiner, and you're listening to this, and you're hopefully stacking sats and doing everything that you have to do, you wouldn't want that for your for the next generation. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I think that if if you give them the lump sum when they're 18 and they don't um, blow it all. And I mean, I'm also assuming that you pass away when they're 18, right? Yeah. In all likelihood, um, you're, you're passing away when they're like ideally in their you know, 50s or 60s. Yeah, yeah. Um, much older. Um, and that raises the question, too, of, of gifting, uh, you know, while you're still alive and and how to go about doing that. I mean, I think that um, it's pretty popular to help out with a down payment or, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, when when they get married to 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 help out like that. Um but that that raises a lot of issues of um, yeah, just in general of how to go about helping someone without ruining their life, without making them dependent, and um, without creating awkwardness in the relationship or um, kind of you know toxicity in the family structure. Yeah, totally. I think the other thing to consider is let's say you're a parent and you want to help your child with their down payment. You go ahead and you help them with their down payment. Are you going to then walk away? and not you know metal or are you going to be mad when they have packages showing up at their doorstep and you're like why did you need help with this down payment you've got twenty thousand amazon packages showing up a month you know it's like things like that where yeah like if you give assistance are you are you going to give it free of strings because i think the only way for you not to have that toxicity within the family is if you're able to do that um but if you give it and there are strings attached to it and you want to control um, the situation or maybe you're you want to giving... pick which house right yep exactly <laughs> you want to pick which house and you want to have a guest house on the property and you know and so forth um, I see this happen a lot where you know especially in wealthier families where kids are accustomed to a certain lifestyle and then they can't afford to live the lifestyle that they lived with their parents after they graduate from school they have to go live in a walk up somewhere that maybe is a little bit dangerous and so the parents say well I'll give you this money for rent so that you don't live in this dangerous neighborhood so that I can sleep at night type of a thing but in a way you're hurting your kid when you do that because they they don't really have an incentive to you know to to help themselves when you're helping them so much um I forget what uh, Millionaire Next Door calls it. They call it like um, economic outpatient something care, economic outpatient care or something like that. It's when parents like compulsively help their children um, in order to like assuage their own anxieties about what their kids would be doing. Yes. Um, and you have to you have to teach your kids humility. Right. And so having them work a service job where they're at the bottom of the ladder uh, and they're learning, you know, the, the, the value of money and the value of work. Um, that can be challenging if the kid, you know, feels entitled and they're like, okay, why are you making me do this? You're, you know, deliberately making my life miserable and uh, that, you know, we, we're not there yet, but um, I'm sure we will be. We'll see. Yeah. How, how it goes. Um, Our kids are already so disagreeable. I'm sure they'll be mad when we make them work at McDonald's. Yeah. And, um, I worked at Target. Uh, that's where I started my my career. Um, my favorite thing, though, was when we were, it wasn't that recent, but we were in Target and you were wearing a red polo and khakis and somebody came over to you and asked you where something was. <laughs> yeah, I should just start volunteering at Target. It was pretty good. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I know that store pretty well now. <laughs> I hate that store. Every time I go in there, I spend like I spend so much money and I don't even know how. I go in there for one thing and I leave with five. Well, the latest thing is to just not pay for what you get. Oh yeah. <laughs> 
just just walk out the front door. But I yeah. accidentally. Do you remember? I accidentally shoplifted that baby bath, and yeah. you and you reverse shoplifted it. You brought it back. Yeah, and I snuck it in. I didn't. I didn't go to the help desk. <laughs> I just. I went to the shelf and I. I put it back. No questions asked. Yep. I was not accosted by the security guard <laughs> saying, "Hey, you're not allowed to reverse shoplift. You have to turn yourself in." Yeah. That was yeah. pretty good. Thanks for doing that. Yeah, sure thing. <laughs> uh, hopefully, hopefully nobody from Target corporate security is listening to this. I know, like, I know. Uh oh, we've got go. a reverse shoplifter here. We're folks. Go find the Rochards. Yeah, doing bad things. <laughs> um. Alrighty. Do you want to wrap it up and go to proof of stake? Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Um. Yeah. So proof of stake. Um. It gets um, brought up because people will say, hey, um, I love all this new blockchain technology, but it consumes so much electricity and that electricity would be better spent, you know, uh, keeping um, prenatal ICUs warm. Uh, yeah, there you than, go. Yeah. They should just run a Bitcoin miner in those prenatal ICUs. <laughs> well... <laughs> Maybe that's a good idea. But. I kind of want to run one in our garage during the winter because I don't really like working out in there when it's like 20 degrees in our garage. Uh, yes, it's just the it's not as economical as just running a space heater. I know, I know. <laughs> exactly. I was like, well, we should do that. But then I should probably just yeah. get a space heater the, and just the, buy Bitcoin. Yeah, <laughs> the, the mining rig costs like upwards of $10,000. Oh, the, yeah. The, the space heater is like $20. So. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like it would feel cool that, that that was how I was heating the space, but then it would suck in the summer when it's like a thousand degrees in our garage and I want to work out. Yeah. 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 Or <laughs> you're having to run the AC <laughs> to keep the... Just, yeah. Anyways. Um, yeah. So um, people complain about the, the waste of electricity uh, the, that could be used for other things. And then they'll also say that... Um, even if we do produce more electricity, that means that we're emitting more CO2 emissions because obviously the only way to produce electricity is uh, with uh, coal-fired power plants. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, of course. Of course. Um, and so uh, thus, uh, you know, blockchain is bad. And then, uh, you know, the crypto people will say, well, hold on. We have a solution for this problem. It's called proof of stake. It replaces the energy-intensive proof of work mechanism that satoshi um used to have uh this decentralized ledger um and proof of stake instead of consuming lots of electricity you have to buy the underlying token lock it up for a period of time and in, you'll earn a you know passively generate this yield uh and y it'll be used to uh to the same ends as the Bitcoin mining. Okay. Sounds great. What's the catch? So the catch is that <laughs> there are trade-offs between proof of work and proof of stake. Um, now, I think th the strongest argument is that um, because proof of stake requires... Well, okay. There's two really strong arguments. One is that when you do proof of work um, and you're adding a block to the Bitcoin blockchain you're committing yourself to a specific history of the ledger. Yeah. With proof of stake, you don't have to commit yourself to one specific history of the ledger. You can stake on multiple different versions of the history of the ledger. Okay. Um, and so that's the uh, nothing at stake problem is uh, what that's called. Um, 
The other issue with staking is that it's arguably not censorship resistant to the same extent that that proof of work is, because um, in proof of work, the Bitcoin miners cannot stop other people from joining the Bitcoin mining. And so if you're a new miner, you don't have to get anyone's permission to mine. Mm -hmm. Um, All you have to do is find electricity and buy a mining rig. Whereas if you're staking, you have to uh, get your staking transaction included in a block. And the, the people who are responsible for including transactions in a block are the stakers. And so essentially, in order to join their club, you have to get their permission. But they really wouldn't want you to be there, right? Because then there's a conflict loads. of interest. Yeah. yeah, there's a conflict of interest um, where, whereas there's not a conflict of interest with Bitcoin mining because the manufacturers of the mining rigs, they're in the business of selling mining rigs. Like they don't, yeah. you know, they they want you to they buy the mining rig. Yeah. yeah, the electricity provider, you know, they don't even know what you're buying electricity for. The proof of stake people feel like the insurance industry to me. Yeah, it's um. <laughs> It's uh, it's it's less censorship resistant, more permission. Now it's interesting because there was a paper that came out from some um, Stanford computer science people, oh. and they were like, "We found the solution to these problems of proof of stake, and the solution is that you use Bitcoin's proof of work, uh, <laughs> and you anchor your proof of stake chain in Bitcoin's history." Uh, and that's the solution. So, so <laughs> that's, that's where we're where at. I thought folks. you were going with that. Yeah, no, that's that's, <laughs> th- th- that's um, and and they're right that that does solve <laughs> the problem with proof of stake. But nevertheless, it just highlights that proof of stake is not a replacement for proof of work. If anything, it's a complement to. It's it's something that benefits from Bitcoin's proof of work system, um, but uh, Bitcoin's proof of work system does not benefit from staking so the reverse is not true it's kind of you know parasitic in a sense but so let's back up then so we had a whole episode on proof of work so i encourage listeners if you haven't listened to that to go back um but regarding proof of stake so imagine ethereum is able to move to be completely proof of stake what exactly happens right people who already hold ethereum are now staking their ethereum and therefore the more ethereum is created because they're staking? Um, so broadly, yes. Um, now, it's not automatic. So you have to go through a process of putting your Bitcoin up, or sorry, your your ETH uh, up for staking. Okay. Um, and committing it to that. You know, you're basically lending it to the protocol is one way to think about it. Um, and locking it up. So you, you can't then spend those ETH. Now, currently, you can't spend those ETH for the foreseeable future. In fact, they're not ETH. They're ETH2. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, in the in hypothetical future. In this imaginary future, future where ETH2 yeah. actually exists. And Okay, so there's a bunch yeah. of people who have their stuff locked up. ETH2 now exists. They get unlocked. And now they the way that the blocks are confirmed is through people who already have ETH staked. Correct. Okay. And so then if you want to take your ETH out to go buy your kids a cat purse um what happens i don't know why you you're you're saying cat purse <laughs> i had to i'm sorry but I'm sorry. i don't know what that's in reference to i don't know anyone who's got a who's picture, got of, a themselves picture of themselves with a cat, cat purse. Purse. 
especially not any men. <laughs> no, nope, I don't know any men with that. Um, so um, I think that it's um, there. There are solutions where they call it uh, liquid staking, where um, they allow you to unstake it instantly. Um, and then, but generally I think it's like three weeks or a month. Um, and the reason that they have this, uh, time lock on it is because of the, um, what's called long range attacks, um, on staking. And so, um, in order to prevent long range attacks, they have to have what's called checkpointing where the Ethereum developers ever, you know, in less than every month, they add a checkpoint to the source code um, saying that uh, this is the officially designated uh, chain. Now, (laughs) so um, I'm rolling my eyes and I'm sorry, the listeners can't see those. Um, So what you're saying is that if you are an Ethereum miner by doing proof of stake, because you're not really a miner anymore, you're a Staker. staker. If you're a staker and you need to, for whatever reason, sell your Ethereum, that you now can't do it for three plus weeks. Um, yeah, I'd have to go look up the specifics <laughs> of of how long, um, and but and, definitely longer than an ACH. Well, yeah, yeah, like the system's going back in time rather than forward in time. Well, I think that what they would say is that um, you should not stake if you have um, ETH that you that you need uh, to be spending. Okay. Right? So it's for long-term... I see. Your- but I guess I want to compare this to proof-of-work because with proof-of-work with Bitcoin, right, it's you have expenses associated with um, with mining and or what they... as Because you expend electricity, you have your mining rig, you have all sorts of reasons why you would maybe want to sell some of your, your block reward. Um, or I guess that's not what it's called. Sorry. I already forgot what it's called. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's right. Okay. So versus ETH where... You, I guess your expenses are lower because you can, presumably you're not expending as much energy to do proof of stake. Well, presumably your expenses are are null, right? You're just paying for the web hosting, basically for you know the server or whatever you're using uh, to host your your staking node on, um, or a third party that you're delegating to that earns a fee, and they take the fee out before, um, and then the staking rewards that you get. Um, you can choose to either reinvest them or um, to, you know, um, not reinvest them and then have the ability to to move them around. Um, but, you know, I think that they would point out that if if you wanted to sell your mining rig, for example, that might take you three weeks as well, right, to, to find a, a buyer for your mining rig. Um, I think that's the equivalent that they would draw to. Um, but it's not really equivalent because you could just shut off your miner and not have the energy expense and you already outlaid the expense for the miner. It's a sunk cost. Right. Right. But in terms of your capital. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I see what you mean. Um, okay. Sorry. I'm just getting into the details here because mm-hmm. I, I don't, I, n- I never really looked into proof of stake and I imagine that all of our listeners, they probably don't know the nitty gritty on it because. Yeah. And it, it plays into this cognitive bias that people have, um, they they want cash flows, right? People are always talking about, oh, Bitcoin's not a good investment because it doesn't have cash flows. Whereas if I buy this other token and I stake it, then I earn this passive income cash flow, and uh, that's better. Um, the 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 key thing that they're missing here, aside from critiques of staking as being insufficient, you know, with regards to proof of work, is from an economic perspective that they're taking on the exchange rate risk. And so um, if you earn 
8% in staking rewards and the exchange rate of your token goes down 8% versus Bitcoin, then you're actually in a worse position because you have to pay taxes on the staking income. Yeah. Now, interestingly, this is actually in dispute right now with the IRS. And there was a court case recently, one that said you don't have to pay taxes on your uh, staking rewards until you sell them. Okay, because you don't have constructive receipt. Correct. That's yeah. what they're arguing. Now, I don't know. This, was, this wasn't even a tax court. This was in a federal court that um, they won their case. And um, it might, you know, this might change as things go, because I think that this case only applies for that specific taxpayer. So I don't know that it's binding precedent for all uh, staking rewards. Well, it doesn't really make sense, though, because you now pay you current. The way it stands is that currently and if Ethereum is a currency, right, when you put USD into a bank account and you earn interest on it, which could be equivalent to staking, that you would pay taxes on it as it was earned. Well, right. Um, On the other hand, if it's a commodity, Mm-hmm. Then they would argue that it would be like, you know, if, if you bake a a loaf of bread, you don't pay taxes when you pull the loaf of bread out of the oven. You pay taxes when you sell the bread. Yeah, I see. So Ethereum is now saying that they're a commodity, not a currency. Well, um, with regards to the IRS, they, they, they do think of cryptocurrencies as as property, not as um, currency yet. Yeah, that's true. Um, now, I don't know... Um, if you if you earn interest on a euro denominated bond, mm-hmm. I think that you'd have to pay taxes on oh totally. the, the euros yeah. and have to sell them for dollars and mm-hmm. have to pay the IRS. A lot of brokerages will just do it for you. They do yeah. like a foreign tax withholding. Yeah. But yeah. But yes, they basically they sell a portion of your um of your interest that you earned in euros. They send it sell it to dollars and they submit it to the IRS. So if you're interested in ambiguous tax situations, then perhaps staking is for, for you. <laughs> but yeah. uh, if you're uninterested in getting involved in tax court and tax litigation and hiring tax attorneys and hiring tax accountants, then um, perhaps you want to steer clear of, of staking. Okay, so I have another question on it. If you, let's say, you know, ETH2 becomes a thing and there are like, you know, 50 people, 50 stakers that are very large. And then there's, you know, thousands more that are very small, something like that, because that's probably around like some, I mean, it may be not those exact numbers, but it'll probably look something like that. What exactly happens? So the larger stakers earn more staking returns just because they're larger, larger, they stake, they continue to stake more. Well, it's pro rata. Okay. Um, and they have built in this mechanism for Ethereum specifically for Ethereum two, whatever you want to call it that, um, yeah, the more money that the more sorry, the more ethers yeah uh get staked, the lower the um rewards are as a percentage for everyone. Yeah. Um and so that's kind of how they've structured it. So now, that's why you're saying there's an incentive not to allow other people to stake because then you earn less on a pro rata right. basis. Okay. Exactly. You get diluted. And is that the way that they're trying to still cap the supply of ETH? Right. So they're always, um, so, you know, ETH is much closer to central banking than Bitcoin is because they're, they're actively managing their monetary policy. And so, um, there will always be an incentive for stakers, just as there is for miners to increase the, uh, subsidy that is going to them, Mm -hmm. um, and to print more, uh, tokens. Now for, 
Bitcoin miners, the only thing that stops them from creating more Bitcoin is that there are people running Bitcoin nodes that will reject their blocks if they are um, trying to create more more Bitcoin. Um, With Ethereum, um, well, there's their their roadmap is explicitly about um having more on-chain scaling and that if you wanted to run a full node uh that it's going to get more and more expensive um and so one could imagine a situation where the only people running nodes are stakers and uh there's not any kind of effective way for the community to push back on the stakers increasing the subsidy that is going to themselves and they'd have every incentive to uh, give more subsidy to themselves. Um, people will say, oh, but that would cause the exchange rate to crash because of the inflation. And um, sure, but as we know from fiat, there's a Cantillon effect. Mm-hmm. So the exchange rate going down is the last thing that happens. Yeah. The first thing that happens is that the stakers profit at the expense of everyone else. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That's a great point. I think it's also important to note that, yeah, we're picking on Ethereum here, but we're actually picking on all proof of stake. Yeah, all proof of stake. And, you know, there's also a question of, um, could an alternative cryptocurrency, an altcoin, use proof of work? And there are some people who argue that um, that will never be secure. There will never be a secure number two proof of work coin for economic reasons. But that um, that means that the only secure proof of work coin ever will be Bitcoin. And so then that means that all other cryptocurrencies will have to be proof of stake. And if they want to be secure, that they'll have to uh, leverage Bitcoin's proof of work to, to anchor themselves in. Um, and so... You know, while they might be secure in in with regards to their finality, um, they will always have this economic problem of how do you have a monetary policy that um, is sound relative to bitcoins, and uh, that uh, I'm very skeptical that they'll be able to accomplish. I think they'll always have this impulse to dilute, um, and they'll they'll always have ways of of rationalizing why they're diluting, which is, you know, um, what we see in fiat as well. Um, you'll, you'll hear altcoin people say, oh, you know, the reason we have to dilute is that we have to create this treasury that's going to pay for marketing so that we're going to grow the pie. And so even though we're diluting you out, mm-hmm. your, the value is going to go up or we're going to pay for developers to, to do this stuff or um, we're going to increase the staking rewards. And that means more people are going to want to hold the currency. And they're basically creating kind of relative interest rate arbitrage things that, <laughs> you know, it's silly ponzi games but um yeah can i get back to one of the things that you said that you sort of glossed over um why is it that no one else could have proof of work yeah so there it has to do with the um what the people call the asics right so it's um computer chips that are specifically manufactured for a specific purpose so um bitcoin has uh it's the way that Bitcoin's proof of work functions is by using a specific hashing algorithm called SHA-256. And it actually does it squared. So SHA-256 squared that it does. And so you have all this hardware that's being manufactured specifically for uh, Bitcoin mining. Um, Other cryptocurrencies, in order to differentiate themselves 
arguably from a marketing perspective, because it's not more secure, is to be ASIC resistant, Mm. where they have chosen a hashing algorithm that um, is very hard or very expensive to make an ASIC with. And um, so SHA-256 squared uses very little memory and uses a lot of computational power. Okay. And so these ASIC resistant approaches use a lot of memory relative to the computational power. And that makes them ideal for GPUs, graphics uh, cards. And so um, there, they they have two problems. One is that that means that if you are a video game person, you're really mad at these altcoiners because they're driving the price of graphics cards up because people are buying graphics cards to mine cryptocurrencies instead of uh, to play video games. Mm-hmm. Um, or if you are doing artificial intelligence research, which also uses graphics cards, again, you're mad at these <laughs> cryptocurrency people. Um, for for taking this scarce resource, basically, and driving up prices in the market. Um, on top of that, the ASIC resistance actually makes it more insecure because now you have people writing viruses and e-worms and Trojan horses that are targeting gaming PCs mm. so that you mine on, you create botnets of people's gaming PCs using their graphics cards uh, to mine these altcoins. Got it. Which would be uneconomical for Bitcoin, but is economical for these altcoins. And so these botnets are um, much less secure, obviously, than somebody who's uh, legitimately in the business of Bitcoin mining. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, they're controlled by Already we know criminals because they're engaging this behavior. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, you know, if they want to be dishonest miners and double spend and all this stuff, uh, much higher risk there. Um, and, um, yeah, we haven't seen... Um, yeah, so so that's that's basically... Uh, yeah yeah okay i think that's a good answer um i also wanted to come to lightning since we're sort of at a point where maybe we can include lightning in this discussion yeah so this uh some some people on twitter get annoyed when i say this but i'll say it anyway go for it you can kind of look at lightning as a proof of stake system (laughs) oh my gosh yeah so (laughs) you're you're putting bitcoin up and you're you're uh, you're you're binding it to some some outputs in the Bitcoin ledger that are creating channels for this secondary network, the Lightning network, and then um, when you route a payment, uh, you get paid a routing fee, and they you um, are thus earning some kind of you know yield from it. Mm-hmm. Now the difference is that um, with Lightning, you have to first of all actually have to you have to put work into um, f- providing a service of routing payments. Uh, payments, you don't just automatically start routing payments by opening up lightning channels. You actually have to figure out how to serve the network and how to um, essentially be the equivalent of an internet service provider where you are connecting different nodes together and um, getting paid to do that um, rather than earning some kind of free passive income. So it's like proof of stake plus work. Yes, exactly. Um, <laughs> there's no like creation of Bitcoin out of thin air. 
um, every single Satoshi you earn is because somebody sent a payment and they were willing to pay you that Satoshi for routing that payment. I see. Um, and uh, yeah, that's that's where I think that Bitcoin has the best of both worlds. Um, uh, the, it has this, you know, proof of stake system on top of it. People will get mad that I say that. Um, <laughs> proof of stake-ish. Ish, yeah, because it's also the case that um, you don't care about the security of it in the sense that you're not securing a global consensus on the ledger. All you're securing is a, a peer-to-peer consensus that is off-chain uh, between two nodes, and that consensus can be much more flexible than the global consensus. Yeah, well, I think that it, we can all agree that Lightning was created for the purpose of doing smaller transactions off-chain, right? And one of the biggest complaints about Bitcoin before Lightning was created was, how can I ever? How can this ever be a global payment system when I can't even buy my coffee without waiting 15 minutes before I've double spent? Yeah, specifically the coffee. It's always the coffee. Yeah, yeah I always- got to make my coffee payments. So um, that's, I mean... It kind of makes sense, right, that you would have this this al- alternate system that was not on chain where you can open channels and send to one another. Yeah, and the cool thing is that you still don't have to trust anyone with Lightning. So Lightning is is you know fully backed by uh, the Bitcoin network, and um, it it maintains um, the same assurances. The only trade off is that you have to keep your Lightning node online and backed up. And um, generally, people are probably online too much anyway, you know, (laughs) or online 24-7. And, uh, you know, uh, you should be backing up, you know, with, um, now, again, people are going to get mad, but with iCloud or, you know, some kind of uh, cloud solution. Okay, what would a hardcore Bitcoiner use? They would they would develop their own uh, homespun uh, backup solution. Got it. Okay, yeah. in the bunker in the backyard. Type yeah, thing. a floppy disk. <laughs> no <I'm> kidding. <laughs> <laughs> now we've uh, made all the bitcoiners irate. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah, I mean, I I forget which tweet you had where somebody replied about um a lot of things being on Amazon Web Services, like the hosting. Yes. Uh. So there's um. Yeah, people people say, oh, you know, there's too many nodes on Amazon Web Services and that's centralized or something like that. Yeah. But, um, I really, I don't really, I don't, I don't buy the argument of um, the way we measure decentralization is by counting the number of nodes or by counting the number of nodes that are not on a cloud provider. Mm-hmm. To me, the way that you measure decentralization is how much does it cost to run a node? Yeah. With the caveat that if nobody's using the system, then yes, running a node is free. Um, but, <laughs> you know, for a system that's actually getting used, like Bitcoin is, um, how much does it cost to, to run a node and, and to be able to use it as well, right? That's the key part is that it doesn't really, there, you don't get any power from running a node, you get power from actually using it. Yeah, totally. Um And I would say too, so there's a difference, right, between running your Bitcoin node and running a Lightning node. Correct. So your Lightning node is going to connect to the to your Bitcoin node, and um, your Lightning node is going to be watching the Bitcoin blockchain mm-hmm. to make sure that um, nobody is cheating on the Lightning network. Um, and so, in that regard, Lightning is entirely dependent on Bitcoin. But the reverse is not true. Yeah, your Bitcoin node 
doesn't care about lightning. Uh, it, it, it cares about all the transactions and some subset of them are lightning transactions, related transactions, um, from channels being closed or opened. opened, Yeah. Um, and, uh, that, um, your Bitcoin node, you can run a Bitcoin node without running a lightning node, but to run a lightning node, you have to connect to someone's Bitcoin node, ideally your own, but you can also connect to somebody else's. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think that's a good overview. Yeah. Anything you wanted to add there? Um, yeah, I mean, they're, they're, they're two completely different networks. They're completely different, um, protocols, um, you know, in, in their different development teams, like there, there is some overlap, like some people use some, some developers work on Bitcoin and work on lightning. Mm -hmm. Um, but generally, um, it's, you know, most of the lightning developers don't really do any, uh, uh, on-chain protocol, uh, development, uh, per se. Um, so, uh, and and that because because Lightning does not require everyone to agree on the protocol, only your peers that you're directly opening channels with need to agree. That means that it opens up a lot more innovation about what you can do with that layer. Um, whereas on the Bitcoin blockchain, um, the amount of innovation you can have is far more limited because you need to get everyone to agree on any kind of changes to it. Yeah, I think that's what I like the most, though, about Bitcoin and why, why I also find Lightning interesting is like if because Bitcoin can't change, it's kind of the thing that you want most from your money. Um, yeah. But then, you know, we're in a world where innovation is important. So it's kind of nice that you could scale on top of Bitcoin and that this layer would rely on Bitcoin, but not vice versa. Yeah, exactly. And um, the metaphor I'd use is that when you run a Bitcoin node, that's like being your own central bank. Hmm. When you run a lightning node, that's like being your own payment processor, like your own visa. Yeah. And uh, you're, you're able to do this without anyone's permission. um, And uh, you've got a monetary system and a payment system just on your laptop. And that's pretty amazing. It is pretty amazing. All right. Well, I think that's a great place to wrap it up. Yeah. Well, uh, until next time, thanks everyone for listening. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Um, you could find me on Twitter with at Morgan with an E Rochard, and you could find Pierre with at Pierre underscore Rochard also on Twitter. Um, do you want to hear a topic? Probably D send it to me. Pierre will ignore you. No, I'm just kidding. He won't no, that's not true. My my DMs are open <laughs> as well, and I, I do check them. Yeah, so. Pierre. Yeah, you probably should send it to Pierre, to be honest, because he looks at Twitter more than I do. And, um, Is that true? Eh, uh, maybe not. That. I don't know. Yeah, I'm guilty as you are. Um, but we yeah. guilty. We, <laughs> we want to hear from, from you about what you want to hear. Um, and uh, I've gotten some feedback from, advi- from actual advisors who are listening to the show that they want some more advisor-specific content. So um, we might do some of that coming up, too. And... Um, yeah, we'll talk to you all when we can soon, hopefully. We should we should definitely do that. Next episode, we're yeah. going to be focusing on uh, how to how to integrate Bitcoin into your RIA or whatever type advisor business you've got. Oh, yeah. Maybe you could be the host and I could be the assistant to the janitor, to the manager. You'll be the guest. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and I'll be I'll, I'll come up with 20 questions. Um, you know, yeah. And we'll, we'll figure it out. You could be the sidekick next time. <laughs> why kidding. do you want us to have titles i, I don't know i just can... feel like i'm always the sidekick on this show oh, <laughs> I, I, I think you got a lot of talking in this yeah one. you're right actually i did yeah. yeah i did all right yeah anyways people want to hear from you not me <laughs> well i appreciate that comment and uh we will see everyone soon thank you all bye